All right, good morning, everyone. We are ready to go here. Yes. Welcome again. You know, life is just kind of full of change, isn't it? Things are always moving around and changing, and uh, we kind of have to get used to that. But then there are also moments in life when something dramatic happens and you realize just how much change can come all at once. That happened for me last year on Father's Day. My, uh, my family gathered at my house, and we had a great uh, afternoon together after church, and it was a lot of fun. And really, uh, people were getting up to leave when uh, my daughter Ellen and son-in-law Brendan announced that uh, they were expecting. And so now we've just got about three or four weeks left uh, before we are grandparents. Well, they're parents and we're grandparents. And, and so we're really excited about that. And uh, Hudson, Hudson Howard will be here. You'll see him in a few weeks, but um, we're really excited. And that that just sparked all kinds of changes in life. And of course, it was exciting, but then you start to think about changing how, how you plan your life. And, and uh, even though we've kind of been in that empty nest thing for a few years, we're right back to it like 30 years ago when you start worrying about what you leave on the floor and that kind of stuff. And I was like, oh, I didn't, I should have known that would come back around. And, and so we're back to that. And, and my name is changing once again. You know, when I became a dad, I was, I was called Papa. And so I've decided to just kind of go back to that. And then I, once I realized, okay, now I'm Papa again, I was like, well, actually, I'll be Papa the rest of my life. So please don't call me Pastor Papa. But anyway, <laughs> it's too late. Yeah, thanks. But uh, yeah, so many things changed. Here was another thing. I even, this was happening all year. Christmas came along and I had, I never would have predicted that these things would be my, the, my favorite Christmas presents this year. First of all, I got a Kermit the Frog hat. <laughs> Hi-ho. Anyway, just like didn't ask for it last year. I wouldn't have suspected, but this was just like awesome. I can't imagine. So now I've got a hat and then I got the best book. This is incredible. This is uh, Airplane Flight, A Lift the Flap Adventure. It might be one of the best books I've ever gotten. So anyway, all of you pilots, Shan, you need this for William. And if, if you are a licensed pilot, I'll let you lift the flaps after the service. But if not, you know, maybe you could just watch. So anyway, very cool. So love that. Didn't, didn't really see that coming, but, but now I embrace it. We've been in Luke for so long now, we're used to uh, coming in and and uh, studying a passage and, and see that Jesus uh, says something profound or he does something miraculous and, it, and, it, and it's so deep and so amazing. And yet uh, today we come to a passage where he will speak some words and he will absolutely change the trajectory of the people of God and what it's like to relate to God. It's absolutely astounding, and we're going to dive into that. If you were here last week, we saw that uh, Judas has now rejected Jesus. He, he doesn't like the idea that Jesus could be a Messiah, and so he's watching for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to the officials quietly, where no crowd is present, so that he can be taken away and removed from the scene, killed if need be, but just get him 
out of the way. Judas is plotting something that will, will turn into, in fact, the very day of our text now, absolute chaos. He will be, Jesus will be arrested and the disciples will be scattered and there will be illegal trials and false testimonies and beatings and right down to the, the, the last breath of Jesus on the cross. And this will all happen in the next 24 hours. And of course, from, from any human perspective, when if, if we had been a disciple right there, someone following Jesus, you would just have to say, this is utter chaos. Things have completely gone off the rails and it looks absolutely out of control, out of control. But that's only the way it will look. That's only a human perception. The truth is, Jesus is absolutely in control. In John chapter 10, he said, the reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life, only to take it up again. Speaking of his death, and his resurrection. He says, no one takes it from me. No one takes my life away, but I lay it down of my own accord. And of course, Jesus will be forcibly executed the next day, but only because he's willing to have that happen. And that's how we often hear these words, and it's very true, and it it does go to the core of it. Remember, he was taunted on the cross. If you're the Son of God, you know, come down from the cross. Well, he could have other than the fact that he was willing to die. Remember in the, in the garden, uh, these are stories we're going to get to really, really soon, but he says, I could call upon legions of angels and you wouldn't be able to arrest me. This too was true. He just didn't do it because he was willing. But you know, it runs deeper than that. Because even all these chaotic things, it's not like it was chaos, but he just kind of was willing to die at the end. He's actually in control all the way along, regardless of how it looks. And in our story today, we see that the manner and the sequence of the circumstances that we're going to look at, chaotic as the future seems, he's in control. 22, Luke 22, verse 7, then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. We have arrived now on Thursday of Holy Week. It's Thursday. Luke mentions the day of unleavened bread and Passover. Now, when you read the Old Testament, you'll see that the the day of unleavened bread was actually a week, (laughs) and it was a separate ceremony from from Passover. But by Jesus' day, they had become linked together, and they talked about them sort of interchangeably, much in the same way we refer to the, the holidays. And we're including Thanksgiving and Christmas and New Year's, and all those are very different things. But we say the holidays, and that's kind of what Luke is doing here because because that was how it was done in his day. Passover is really the focus. And Passover is a commemoration of God's deliverance of Israel from slavery in Egypt. And it is a, it is a complex ceremony. Now, we have a bit of a, a Passover dinner here at Gateway, so we can kind of understand it better, and, and Mike Collins leads that. And if you were around, you would see that on a Friday, he brings a team of four to eight people, and they spend most of the day setting up for that dinner. That'll come along in April if you're interested. Mike would love to have you come and learn about the Passover. But it's a complex ceremony, and so Jesus here in this real Passover, he sends Peter and John. He says, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it, they asked. See, now it's interesting. Jesus could have sent any two disciples. These guys have been celebrating Passover every year of their life, and it's very, very familiar to them. There's, any of them could have done it. But he picks 
Peter and John, the two people who are very closest to him, the people he can trust the most. Here's what's amazing. Jesus knows that they will abandon him that same day. Peter will deny him in less than 24 hours, but he also knows he can trust them with where they will celebrate the Passover. They'll fail, but they won't betray him. Isn't it amazing how God knows our limitations and our failures that are yet to come, but he also knows what he can trust us with? So he sends Peter and John, and he sends them with these instructions. As you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where's the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He'll show you a large room upstairs, all furnished. Make preparations there. See, here's the amazing thing. Judas is plotting something and he's not sure of the timing. He's looking for an opportunity. <laughs> Jesus knows the timing. And Jesus has a plan. He's, he's two steps ahead. He has a plan to control Judas's plot because Jesus has some things he wants to accomplish. He has some plans for that day, and he won't be arrested before the right time. So he arranges a location secretly in advance. This is already set up. Judas hasn't even, you know, pulled the trigger yet. And Jesus is protecting his plans and making his plans. Uh, church tradition says that the location was the house of John Mark. He was a, probably a teenager at the time, and we'll see him later in the garden. I think, I don't know if that's in Luke, but he's in the garden late that night, and so I think people put that together and say, how would a teenager have found them after the secret Passover and so forth? It could very well be his house, and in a lot of ways it makes sense, but we're not sure. Now, Jesus provides a sign of how to find the person they're hooking up with here. He, he provides a sign that's unusual, but not bizarre, right? It's a, it's a man carrying a jar of water, which men didn't tend to do, right? So it's, it's unusual. They're able to find him, but it's not really strange. You didn't say, go find the man who's juggling kittens in the corner. You know, it's like, that's Pastor Bob. We'll leave him alone. But you find the guy, you find the guy with the jar of water, and he's over here. And so, so he, he arranges secretly, and the point is really obvious. Nobody knows where this is going to happen except a very few trusted people, and Judas doesn't know. Actually, ten disciples don't know where they will be that evening. And so Peter and John go off, and they found things just as Jesus had told them, and so they prepared the Passover. Do those words kind of ring a bell? Can you think back two years ago when we started the book? Remember, remember the shepherds receive a message regarding the Messiah, the King that's born, and, and they go, and what do they discover? It's exactly as they were told. And this is what we find as a theme running through the book of Luke, that the Word of God, the words of Jesus are absolutely dependable. He's in control regardless of what it looks like. He's in control. And of course, the next few hours will look desperate and desperately out of control. But here we have, if we jump to the end of our passage for today, we find one more example of this. It says that Jesus says in the middle of Passover, the hand of him who's going to betray me is with mine on the table. He's speaking of Judas, and what we understand from this is that Judas is sitting next to him in an honored position. 
Jesus is the host of Passover, and Judas is sitting next to him. And he says, the Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. And they began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. They didn't really know. They weren't able to single out Judas. Jesus was, but the other disciples didn't get it, and this troubled them. Now, here's one of the ironies I find in this. In a few hours, Jesus will stand trial. It's illegal, and the, and the testimony is false, and the conviction is wrong, but he submits himself to it for our benefit. But here in this moment, there is a true judge, a righteous judge, rendering a verdict that will stand and is righteous. He says, woe to that man who betrays him. He says, you know, all this stuff that's going to happen to me in the next 24 hours, the reason that's going to happen is not because of Judas. It's because it's been decreed. It's because it's the plan. That's why it's happening the way it's happening. But woe to the man who betrays me. Those are the words of a righteous judge. Sobering words and somewhat ironic given the events of that day. And so the hour comes. The hour comes and Jesus and His apostles reclined at the table. For He said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. And after taking the cup, He gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not eat again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. The hour has come. This is an hour Jesus has anticipated, and he understands that in, in many ways, history is hinging at this moment, right? And he has anchored himself, and, and for the disciples, really for us, in, in the past and the present and the future. We notice the past because he's celebrating the Passover. Now, the Passover came with, with uh, four cups, and here, probably, the, the cup that Luke mentions here, that's not the Lord's Supper. That's either the first or second cup of Passover. The first cup is a cup of blessing, uh, kind of in the same way we might pray before a meal and, and say grace. It's kind of like that, the initiation of Passover. Or it's the second cup, the cup of judgment, which has to do, again, with the exodus and coming out of Egypt. And then we have not only the past, but Jesus is anchoring there, but He's in the present, and our next two verses will be the Lord's Supper. And then He's also looking to the future. Notice this. Take this. I, won't, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. He's looking into the future as well. See, there's, there's all kinds of celebrations being alluded to here. There's the past, and, and then there's this transition to the present and, and into the future. I used to read this like Jesus was somewhat sorrowful, right? You know, I won't have another good, satisfying something to drink, you know, all the way until the distant eternity. But I actually don't think that's it. I think he's saying, oh, I've wanted to get to this moment because finally now, you see, we're, 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 we're going to transition to something even more wonderful, and that makes me think of where I really want to get you. You see, not only do I want to get you from the Passover table to, to my table, but I want to get you to something into the future, in, in, into the marriage supper of the Lamb. Revelation 19, these are words about our future. It says this, hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and, and give Him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. Blessed are those 
who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Jesus can't wait, and he knows now because he's gotten to that evening and the next day that he's that close to getting us where he really wants us, home to his table and the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's the goal. That's the goal, and now we're, we're getting closer. I think he's excited, and he's opening his heart and his plans and his anticipation before his disciples. And so now in the Passover, back in the Passover, the host of a Passover meal interprets each of the food. He repeats what, what, what each element represents and was meant to recall. So, for example, I'm not an expert at this. We could have Mike do this better. But, but uh, he would take a vegetables and dip in salt water and say, this now reminds us of the tears of our ancestors, that, that salty water, the tears of our ancestors who experienced oppression. And these bitter herbs, this reminds us of the bitterness of slavery. And this stewed fruit reminds us of having to make bricks for Pharaoh, a harsh, harsh master. And these, were, these foods were symbols. And they did and accomplished several things. First of all, they taught a story. And so if you were young, this is how you learned of your history. They taught a story. And then for those celebrating it, it would, it would anchor you in, in God's activity on your behalf. See, if God has done something for you, is it a good idea to forget that? Or is it a good idea to celebrate that and make sure you remember that? Well, of course, the answer is obvious. And so these, this meal would anchor you in the activity of God rescuing the, the people out of slavery in Egypt. And of course, in doing that, when we recognize what God has done, that's a way of worshiping God, of honoring God, and so all of these things are accomplished. And the greater one embraces this, the symbolism in these, in these uh, elements of this meal, the richer they become to us, and the more meaningful, and the more it opens up our heart to the Lord. Now, in this Passover, Jesus is moving through the meal, and he gets to the Passover bread, which was usually eaten with the sacrificial lamb, and, and this was called the bread of affliction. And so he as all the disciples expect, raises the bread of affliction. And they, they are anticipating to hear the familiar words that this bread reminds us of our afflictions of slavery. Verse 19, and he took the bread, he gave thanks, and he broke it, and he gave it to them saying, this, this bread of affliction is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. See, and there it is. I just, I'm not sure we can even enter into what that moment would have been like. For the disciples, this was stunning. It would be like me telling you the Christmas story, and then somehow it leads to somewhere you hadn't expected yet, right? And Caesar Augustus issued a decree that everyone should go to Nineveh. Like, that's not it. <laughs> See, this bread of affliction is now going to have to do not with the aff uh, affliction of your ancestors, but my affliction, Jesus says. This is my body given for you. It reminds me of the words of Isaiah chapter 53. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. 
But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. You know, in the Passover, the the actual event in history, the plagues in Egypt, those ten plagues, they they were two things. They were brutal judgments against Pharaoh and against the Egyptians for their treatment of God's chosen people. They were brutal judgments, but they were also the means of deliverance for Israel. And in a similar or actually greater way, the the cross and and the bread and the cup. See, the cross was an ultimate judgment of sin, a terrible judgment and payment uh, for sin put all on Jesus. It's a terrible thing. But it was also our means of deliverance. And so, the bread and the cup are to us both terrible and wonderful all at the same time. So we see the bread represents the suffering that Jesus endured in his physical body. He became our sacrifice, our substitute. And then he asks us to do something with that bread. He says, I want you to remember me. Now, remembering in the Old Testament, if we had time, we could trace kind of through how remembering is used. But remembering has to do with faithfulness. Remembering helps us be faithful. It also accomplishes, like the the Passover meal, it anchors us in our life in Him, that we're absolutely dependent on Him, and we lose track of that so quickly, don't we? (laughs) We go about our, our days, and we get consumed with the chaos in the world and in our lives, and we forget this is where we are anchored. We're anchored in the unchanging God who's absolutely dependable, who never fails. Jesus says, remember that. Anchor yourself in what I've done for you. And when we do that, of course, it honors Him for what He's done. See, the more we embrace the symbols that we've been given with our hearts and our minds, the more significant and powerful those symbols become. Yes, the Lord's Supper is powerful, but not in a magical way, right? No, it's a spiritual way, not in an automatic way. It's a piece of bread and a cup of juice. No, it's, it's by faith. It's not a ceremony. It's relationship. In the same way that sometimes maybe we, we give gifts, but if it's a ceremony, if it's a requirement, how much does it mean? But when it's an expression of love and relating to each other, it, it, it's profound. And so, this is what the bread and the cup mean. In fact, the cup is next. Verse 20, in the same way after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Now, we're still in Passover, and he he had the the bread of affliction has, has to do with his affliction. And this cup, this is probably the third cup of Passover, the cup of redemption. And so, yes, Passover reflects on the redeeming nature of God, but we take it one step further and say the redeeming nature of God in the activity of Christ on the cross. This is the fullness of all that it represents, moving from old covenant to something now he announces, which again is startling to the disciples, the new covenant, the new covenant produced in my blood. Hebrews 9 
15 says, For this reason Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. See that his death authorizes him. It enables him to act as a mediator. He's completely qualified to mediate between you and the Father about this issue of how he is faithful and we are not. And he resolves that as our mediator in the terms of the new covenant. Pastor Bob's going to come. He's going to help us uh, dig a little deeper into the new covenant and also uh, prepare our hearts for celebrating the Lord's Supper instead of just talking about it. So, Pastor Bob. Thank you, Pastor Bill. Well, the uh, Last Supper, the first communion. In uh, Luke twenty-two fifteen, Jesus says, uh, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And it's kind of a, it's, to me, this is an amazing verse because there's so much that's going on here. It, uh, Jesus says, I earnestly desire. And in the Greek, um, those two words are basically the same. Um, earnestly desire. He's, he's, trying to, he's trying to make a point here. And his point is that he is passionate and he's really intense about this thing. So, you know, a lot of times when we take the Lord's Supper, it's, it's very solemn and it's very quiet and, you know, no, no kids talking, no phones ringing. It's just, and it, which is appropriate in some ways. But Jesus was super intense, was super passionate at that uh, first communion. Now, it's interesting to me how he was able to uh, maintain his focus because Think about what's about to happen, all right? He's around the table with these guys he loves so much, but he's about to be betrayed. He's about to be rejected. He's about to uh, go through terrible suffering and, and be stripped naked and humiliated and hung on a cross, and yet he's at this table, and I just love how he's fully focused on, on the guys around the table, and he's, he's not freaking out about what's about to come. In fact, he says, man, I've really been looking forward to spending this time with you. Now, why would he be so earnest about that, knowing what's about to come? Well, I think it's because as he looked around the table, he was very excited about what was going to happen in the lives of these men as a result of what was going to happen right after that, that, that because of his sacrifice on the cross, he was going to be able to pass on his righteousness to them. We'll talk about that in a minute. He was going to bring them into a new relationship with God. And a lot of times I, I look back at those three years of, of Jesus with his disciples, and I sometimes think, how cool would that have been, right? How cool would that have been to have been one of his disciples to have spent three years traveling around with Jesus? And yet amazing as that would have been, what Jesus has said on several occasions is, you know what's even better than that? What's going to happen afterwards? Because after the cross, we're going to have things like the Holy Spirit that they didn't have yet during this time. We're going to have a purpose and a power, and, and Jesus says ultimately we'll be reunited with him in heaven in this perfect context where everything is right and good as it was meant to be. And here's the big idea I want you to get this morning. It's, it's that our relationship with Jesus is rooted in him. It's established in him. It's anchored in him, not in us. It's not on what we say or what we do. It's on what he did and who he is. 
And we can completely rely on him and his words and his promises to us, but not so much us. I mean, I, you know, in fact, in a couple of, uh, in a couple of minutes, Peter's going to say to Jesus, you know, I would, I'm willing to die for you. Remember that story? I want to die for you. And yet a couple hours after that, he's not even willing to admit to a little girl that he knows Jesus. And we're kind of like that. We make big promises. We make big commitments, but we don't always follow through. You know, this made me think this week, I, uh, uh, two most important women in my life, my wife, Christy, and my daughter, Abby. And um, Abby has been on a crusade for the last couple of years. She wants a dog. And uh, I, I just kind of keep putting her off because I'm like, honey, we have a cat and I don't want a dog and a cat at the same time. Our cat's 17 years old and it will not die. It just won't die. And, uh, and so my, my daughter's been kind of crusading for several years for a dog. And then we took her away to uh, college at the end of August. And so she really she really upped her game. So right before uh, we took her to college, um, she set me up with a Twitter account and a Snapchat account and an Instagram account. And, um, and so it's really funny because people are like, you know, I get this so-and-so's following you on Instagram stuff. Just so you know, if you're following me, I've never ever posted anything myself on Instagram or Twitter. Never. My daughter set those up as a tool, because what she does is every couple days, she posts pictures of dogs on, on those accounts. Or she, so for instance, I got this from her yesterday. So I'm like, I thought she was in college, but apparently she's just touring um, pet stores. And so she, this is what she'll do. She'll send me pictures of dogs. And so a couple of years ago, I was like, well, you know, if I got a dog, I'd probably want to get an English bulldog because they're kind of cool. And so she found an English bulldog yesterday and sent me the picture. And then it was good. She kind of wanted, she's wanted to get a corgi for the last couple of years. I'm just not a really big corgi fan. Like, they got the big, long bodies, and the, but the little tiny legs so they can't get on furniture or anything, which I guess is good. Um, and now we're kind of on a Westie kick, you know. But so here's how it goes. She'll send me a picture, and then she'll say, Dad, look at it. Isn't it cute? Don't you want it? And, and I'll text back. I, you know, I don't know. I texted her back yesterday. I don't know. And then she'll text back, Dad, it's, it's here. You can buy it. You should get it. Now, I know how it goes by now. She will not stop texting me until I say the magic words. Well, who knows, honey? Maybe I'll get it. So I tell you, again, I don't know. You never know. I might just go get it. And when you come home on spring break, it might be living in your room and you'll have to sleep in the living room, you know, I, and uh, which she'd be okay with. But then I never get the dog. So she texts me yesterday afternoon. She says, you know, dad, I'm really starting to question your reliability because <laughs> you keep telling me you're going to get me a dog and we still don't have a dog. And I, I tell you that because I've you know, we're, we're all kind of like that. I mean, even when we really try hard, even when we try to keep promises, try to keep our word, try to do the right things, you know, none of us are perfect. But every word that Jesus has ever said is absolutely reliable. And there's this pattern in the Gospels where sometimes Jesus will say something really heavy and really serious, and then he'll say something kind of light. And the, 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 even the light things are meant to help us understand. We can trust his every word. So he'll say stuff like, uh, let's have Passover. You're going to go to a city, and when you get there, you'll see a man carrying a jar of water, and you'll follow him into the house. It's very like Mission Impossible kind of thing, you know, and you won't really know why. And, and what's the whole point of all this anyways? Well, I think it's just Jesus saying, you know what? You can trust every word that I say to you. The little stuff, like that's the interesting stuff, or, you know, even when I say like I'm going to be betrayed, which he was, or arrested, which he was, or crucified, which he was, or raised 
on the third day, which he was, or if we place our trust in him, we can have forgiveness of our sin. And here's why this is so important, because we have a tendency to live under the misconception that somehow our relationship with Jesus is secured by a decision or a vow or a pronouncement that we've made. Like we can fool ourselves into thinking, well, I I prayed a prayer and I really meant it and I cried a tear. I was sincere. I was in a really difficult situation and I made a vow to Jesus because I was desperate or walked the aisle or I went to one-on-one or I got wet in front of everybody, you know, and we start to think that it's our words that govern our relationship and our standing and our security with Jesus Christ when in reality the exact opposite is true. It is the reliability of Jesus and his words and his promises and his actions that save you, that keep you saved. You understand that a lot of times as Christians, we almost feel like it's a bait and switch. Rather, we came to church or, or, you know, we heard the pastor and he said, hey, you're saved by grace and there's nothing. You can just accept the free gift of God. So we accept the free gift and then we come to church the next week and the pastor says, now you got to do this and this and this and this. And we forget that we stay saved the same way we got saved. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ. How do we stay saved? By grace, not by good works. But we, we forget that. We forget that it's grace that saved us, that keeps us saved, that sustains us, that keeps us in God's favor. Well, as Jesus is with the guys in that upper room, uh, as Pastor Bill's already read, he had the cup. It says, after he'd eaten, he said, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. He talks about this this covenant. And and Jesus is about to advance the meaning uh, or the symbolic understanding of the covenant, of the old covenant and of, of Passover. And God has throughout human history related to be people through, through covenants. And uh, for instance, you can go back to Genesis 2 and you have Adam and Eve and they're in the garden and God comes and makes a covenant with them in, in agreement. Uh, some people will think of it as a contract, but a covenant with God is a little bit different than maybe a contract because often when we make contracts with people, we're like, I'll do this and you'll do this. And if either one of us don't do it, then the, then the contract is broke. A covenant with God is more like this. God comes to a person or a group of people and says, I'm going to do this. So this is with Adam and Eve. He says, I'm, I made you and I created you and I gifted you and I'm giving you some work to do. And here's how we're going to live in relationship. So here's what I'm doing for you. I made you, created you, sustained you. And now here's how you're going to live in light of that. And we're going to have a covenant. The difference with God is he's the one who does all the work and we're the one who get all the benefit. Well, then there's the other thing we do. We break the covenant because we're covenant breakers. So God will be faithful and we'll break the covenant. But God is so rich in mercy and grace that with Adam and Eve, the story didn't end there. You go forward a little bit in history. You meet a guy named Abraham. And uh, this is a guy in Genesis 12. His name was Abraham at that point. And, and uh, God comes to this man who uh, had never done anything worthy of a relationship with God. And God says to him, he says, I'm going to make of you a great nation. It was God's choice. I'm going to make of you a great nation through which all the people of the earth will be blessed. And then a little bit later, God uh, further defines this covenant when he rescues his people from Egypt. You might remember that story. And we often refer to that as the old covenant where God comes and he rescues Israel. He showers his grace on them. He sets them free. And then once 
once he set them free, once he showered them in his love and his grace, then he gives them about 613 commandments. And sometimes we misunderstand. We think, oh, the commandments are so that God will love me. When in fact, again, it's the exact opposite. We get commandments because God already loved us. He had already rescued them. He had already saved them. And then he gave them the commandments. What are the commandments about? There are just 613 ways to live in a relationship with God. So God says, you're covenant breakers, you're sinners. I love you, I want to have a relationship with you. You don't know how to do that. So here's how you do it. Jesus said the whole thing can be wrapped up very simply, all of, the, all of those laws, all those commandments, all wrapped up in two things. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. That's it. Jesus said it all wraps up in that. But as the Old Testament unfolds, there is this problem that comes up again and again and again. And that is God's people don't really love him all that well. And they don't trust him very much. We talked about that last week. If we don't really trust him then we're not going to give him authority. And if we don't give him authority, we're not going to obey him. So again, we get it all backwards. We think, the problem is I don't obey him very well. No, the problem is you don't trust him very well. And this is what's going on. And so God makes an amazing promise to his people. He says, I know we're doing this whole old covenant thing and I know you're finding it difficult and you're really struggling with it. So we're going to do something new in the future. And in Jeremiah 31, it tells us this, looking forward. And notice that kind of a a reoccurring theme as I read this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. He says, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each one his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. So notice what God says. Here's how the new covenant works, right? He says, I will make, I will put, I will write, I will be, I will forgive, I will remember no more. I will, I will, I will. This is what I will do. And at the Passover meal, what Jesus is saying is, it's, the, it's my blood by which all of these Old Testament I will promises are going to come to pass. It's through the work of Jesus. It's not through you trying really hard It's through Jesus dying for you on the cross and you accepting that by faith. I'm going to ask the men if they'll go back at this point and grab uh, the elements, the cup and the bread and they're going to uh, pass that out to us. And if you are here this morning and have a faith relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, if you've trusted in him for your salvation, I want to encourage you as the the cup and the bread come by to to grab uh, one of each of those. And I'm going to finish taking us through the passage here. See, Jesus is passionate about what he's about to do. In Hebrews 12, 2, it tells us this. It says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Notice what he says here. The founder and perfecter of our faith, and here's some important words, who for the, who for the what? The joy, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, 
and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, who for the joy set before him. So guys, come forward right now and pass those out. And, but as we look at this text, think, think about this. What was the joy? Well, he makes it clear. It, it wasn't enduring the cross. I mean, it wasn't being betrayed. It wasn't being arrested. That wasn't the joy. Jesus was like, woohoo, you know, I, I get to go to a cross and I'm going to be humiliated and, and nailed and I'm going to suffer and die. Did, that was not what Jesus was excited about. The joy was the result of all that. The joy, in fact, is looking forward to the day when you would be in a church service as a worshiper of the Lord Jesus Christ, taking communion because of what he had done. You see, you as a follower of Christ, you were the joy. Your salvation, your relationship with God, the fact that you're a child of God, that was the joy that he was looking forward to. It was you, it was, it was me, it was the disciples who were sitting around the table with him. As he was looking at, that, at those guys that day, the joy was that the penalty for our sin would be paid for, that we could be made righteous. You know, again, we're not really, we, we're people who don't care that much about righteousness. We ought to, because nothing, quite frankly, is more important to your eternal destiny than righteousness. To be righteous simply means to live in a right relationship with God, but to be truly righteous means you always have lived that way and you always will live that way, and of course, none of us have. And scripture is clear. The only way you can have a relationship with God, the only way you can be saved is if you're righteous. So what do we do if we're not righteous and it's the only way to be right with God? Well, that's where the cross comes in. Uh, Martin Luther put it this way. He said that God offers to us on the cross what he calls the, the great exchange. That Jesus took all of your sin, kind of grabbed all that sin, all that terrible stuff you've ever done, that I've ever done, ever, we ever will do, and he held that. It was nailed with him to the cross where he suffered and blood and died and paid the penalty for our sin. And in exchange, Jesus says, now you get righteousness. In fact, in the, sometimes in the Bible, it, it gives this picture of righteousness being like a robe. It's like Jesus gives you a righteous robe and you put it on. You kind of wrap it around you. And when God sees you, see, and here's always the irony to me. When God sees you, you know what he sees? He sees the righteousness of Jesus all over you. And that's always awkward, right? Because it's usually not what we see. (laughs) When we look in the mirror, it's not what we see. We see sin and mistakes and all the stuff that we did. But it's not what God sees. And guess what? It doesn't really matter what you see. It matters what God sees. What does he see? Someone who's right with him. Someone who's been made right. That's why Jesus could be so passionate and excited. Because see, up to this point, the disciples around that table are not yet clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Because he hasn't died yet. So he's like, man, something is about to happen and it's going to seem terrible to you, Jesus. But in fact, it's amazing. And they'll receive the Holy Spirit. And they'll have eternal life. So we need to remember Jesus' perspective here. Communion isn't about any promise or vow that we've ever made to him. It's about the promises he's made to us and what he's done for us on the cross. And here's why this is so important again. Because if your salvation is based on your commitment and your obedience, then there's no hope for you or for me. 
But if it's based on Jesus' promises and actions, then our salvation is rock-solid secure. And all the things that he said about us are true. And all his words and promises are reliable, even when we're not. So when Jesus says things like, I'm the way and the truth and the life, that's fact. When he says, you know, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's true. He'll do that. When he says, I am the resurrection and the life, we we can bank on that. In verse 15, he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. He is passionate about this. And as you take communion today, don't forget this. That this means so much to Jesus that he earnestly desired to have this meal with his disciples. And I believe to have it with us today. I want to just give you a moment of reflection before we take the bread and the cup and close. In uh, Corinthians, Paul writes that uh, it's important for us when we take communion to take a moment and uh, to pray, to talk to God, to make sure we're right. There may be something we need to confess or maybe there's just something you need to thank him for this morning. But I want to give you a moment just quietly to talk to God. Whatever it is that you need to say to him and then we'll take the bread and the cup together. Would you pray? Father God, I thank you for our time together this morning. In fact, I'm just thinking this morning how we've been working towards this point for over two years now. How much I've been looking forward to this uh, morning when we would take communion together, remembering that, that last supper, that first communion. Father, this morning we thank you that our salvation rests not in us, but in the work of your Son. I thank you that he is the the rock, the anchor of our salvation. And that if we place our faith in him, that that salvation is ours. Fathers, we take the bread and the cup this morning. Remind us of the body of Christ that was broken and given for us. And the cup, the blood that was spilled for the new covenant that we enjoy today. Thank you for the body and the blood. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said. In Luke twenty two nineteen, it says that he took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the next verse, it says, And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is a new covenant in my blood. So it's a third service, and I have to tell you, um, I appreciate the opportunity to be part of this this morning, and I feel like I was like maybe a little bit upbeat for communion. 
But I've been looking forward to this for a few years, and it, it came about a couple of weeks ago that we realized I probably couldn't preach this weekend because of some stuff that was going on this last week, and so Pastor Bill and I compromised, and uh, he let me be a part of this, and I'm so glad that I could. This is such an amazing gift that God has given to us, his son. Never forget that when you take communion. Never forget what an incredible gift it represents. Amen? Will you stand as we close together with the song?